Welcome to Shelf Logic, the official podcast of the Maricopa County Library District. Hello and welcome to our podcast. My name is Caroline and I am here today with Tim and we work at the Litchfield Park Branch Library. Today we are talking about science fiction film that you can watch on Canopy. We have picked four drastically different movies. Our first movie is a classic silent film, The Lost World. Next is the silent is the excuse me cyberpunk film Dark City. Then we will talk about the post-apocalyptic The Postman. And lastly, we will talk about the sci-fi movie with Western elements Prospect. So, Tim, why did you have us watch The Lost World? So, The Lost World is one of the first major science fiction slash special effects movies uh, in out of Hollywood. And the, uh, the thought behind The Lost World and all of the plot really dictate a lot of what would come later, especially uh, just a few years later in King Kong. Uh, almost beat for beat, the plot is, is matched up. And it's based off a novel by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. And the restoration that we saw on Canopy is incredible looking. That being said, this movie does feature some uh, culturally... I, yeah, I wouldn't say feature, but it's, it's good to say something about it, yeah. Yes, it, it does have some culturally and racially insensitive characters and moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, Caroline, what did you think of the film? Well, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very good movie. Um, I was very impressed with the um, stop-motion effects of the dinosaurs, which was cutting-edge technology back then, and I thought that they did a really good job. And as you said, it helped to lead to movies like King Kong, Um, and it also inspired other people who do who in the future did some um, special effects art like that with um, Ray Harryhausen and um, I thought the acting was good and I enjoyed the um, story especially um, I liked uh, I believe his name is Wallace Berry yes as um, Professor Challenger and Challenger is a really neat character and he plays Professor Challenger. He plays up like Professor Challenger looks and acts almost like a mad scientist. He, yeah, he does, but he also, I mean, definitely mad. He has, he doesn't look like a scientist as much as he looks like this big brooding guy yeah. with the beard. And I like it because it's so different from what you would get with um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes. This is like the total opposite of Sherlock yes. Holmes. And if you read either of those um, stories, you'll see the difference. And I even think that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle enjoyed writing these adventures with the big, gruff, scientist, explorer, challenger, instead of writing what everybody was reading, which was Sherlock Holmes. Yes, and I think that Professor Challenger in this film, so it's interesting. You can tell because The Lost World came out in 1925, which at the time of recording means it's almost 
a literal century old, uh, almost a hundred years now. And you can definitely tell this is the early days of cinema, not just because it's a silent movie, but because there are essentially three or even four main characters <laughs> in this film. And they all have their own story beats. And Professor Challenger is one of those four. He's very boisterous and ironically loud for mm -hmm. a silent movie. But you can totally hear his voice even though you can't hear his That's voice. That's true, yeah. And all of the characters are very clearly defined. Um, that being said, there's also elements of like shorthand where you can see that a scene was longer as it was written and then they just have one sentence for the card <laughs> in the middle where it says what they're saying and it leads to some scenes that feel a lot longer than they necessarily have to be but overall it's a very like tightly paced movie. Yeah, it is. It is. It 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 goes at a quick pace. Yes. And I think you can also tell how old it is because none of the dinosaurs that we think of as being like the feature dinosaur are really featured. Like there's the Allosaurus and the T-Rex. And the T-Rex does get a little bit of time to shine, but he's not really featured like you would see in Jurassic Park or something like that. Okay, my favorite dinosaur is the dinosaur that's featured, and that's the Brontosaurus. Yes. The Brontosaurus... Uh, gets gets the ability to like at one point he's holding his own against the t-rex right. falls off a cliff and, sur and survives and survives <laughs> and gets taken back to london and just starts wrecking the town and leaves but he has this look on his face like i don't know what this thing is in front of me which and it was like a statue i'm just gonna knock it over you know he he has like facial expressions, like yes. the, he has like thoughts. Yes, and you can, some of the special effects are revolutionary even going into like the 50s and 60s where the Brontosaurus is stomping around London and at one point he pushes through into the subway system accidentally and there's this brief cut of people like screaming and scrambling as this massive like foot comes through the the ceiling of the subway station and it's brief enough that you don't see like the giant prop foot which would make it feel more silly but in its brevity it's very effective because it really does feel like this massive dinosaur is just like stomping through london <laughs> okay now i have a question for you in the scene near the end, where he's in the, the Thames. Yes. Didn't you get the feeling, I mean, when you look at him, were you kind of like, oh, so that's where Nessie came from? Yeah, <laughs> it's it definitely feels like that could easily be the origin story of it. <laughs> um, I also like the ending where it's just like he heads out to sea and presumably he's going to head back to the Amazon. I don't know. <laughs> like well there he goes yeah the brontosaurus just swims out to sea and like he's not an aquatic creature no, so. that's what i was wondering about i'm yeah. like is he okay out in the ocean all right but as far as its effect on science fiction you can directly trace several like uh films from this movie 
you King Kong, the later King Kongs, and from King Kong you get kaiju films like Godzilla, and then later on you get Jurassic Park. And those films all owe a great deal to uh, The Lost World. And like I said, the, the restoration, some, some frames of this film look incredibly crisp. And it was Flickr Alley and I think Lobster Films uh, that restored it. And they're, they're incredibly, like they look like they were filmed yesterday. Um, and then there's other shots that are clearly a hundred years old. But yes, I, I quite enjoyed it. Um, so that being said, uh, we move on to our next film and Caroline, uh, why did you have us watch Dark City? Okay. Um, where do I begin? Okay. So this movie is actually one of my favorite movies. Um, the story is so well written. There's so much foreshadowing on like the running themes of mazes and always being watched and the acting is incredible. The set direction, it, it, it's beautiful. Um, the special effects are great. And you look at this movie and if you were to compare it to The Matrix, you're, you kind of look at it and go, did the Wykowski sisters actually watch this before making The Matrix? Because there's so many elements in this movie that look like The Matrix. And like I said, with the art direction, it, it's a mixture of the 1940s, the 50s, the early 60s. Um, one of my favorite uh, scenes is the beautiful actress um, Jennifer Connelly. She's dressed up like a 1940s seductress and singing uh, the, the song The Night Has a Thousand Eyes, which is a song that was sung by um, Bobby V in the 1960s. And I, I just, it, it's just such a good film. It's got a really quick pace to it, and there's just so much to it. So, Tim, what did you think of the film? I, I enjoyed Dark City, and I hadn't seen it since I was much, much younger, and I don't think I could appreciate it as much then. Um, I really enjoyed how, how much I enjoyed some of the other characters, like Murdoch, the, the main character, played by Rufus Sewell, is uh, an excellent lead and he's very you keep your attention on him the entire mm -hmm. film but a lot of the side characters are just absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. uh, like Mr. Hand uh, played by Richard O'Brien who is Riff Raff from mm -hmm. the Rocky Horror Picture Show. One of your favorites. Yes, yes I love the Rocky Horror Picture Show but um, Riff Raff Richard O'Brien plays Mr. Hand, and he plays him so menacingly without actually doing much action. Like, he can just walk towards you, and it's one of the most frightening things. Yeah. And there's just this level of intensity. And he's only in, I would say, probably about 15% of the mm -hmm. movie, and yet he's one of, if not the major antagonist that keeps reoccurring, Mr. Book, 
notwithstanding. Yeah, and just to let everybody know, the aliens in the movie, they all have names that are just very common names. Yes. You know, common words, not common names, common words like Mr. Book, Mr. Hand. Mr. Sleep. Right. Yes. And they are all like bleach pale because they're cadavers. Mm -hmm. And they look like Nosferatu. Yes. And they're partially based off of, uh, if what I read was correct, uh, riffraff from Rocky Horror Picture Show. That sort of stilted way of speaking and the very pale appearance. And they're incredibly effective. Uh, but then you have Kiefer Sutherland who's doing this very like odd character work, but it's effective for the film. He does a good job and it's nothing like you've seen him before. Yes. I mean, it's not like Lost Boys. It's not like 24. Yeah. It's just totally different. He's very meek and mild yes. character. And he's constantly like thrown around in this movie because he's he's a little bit conniving, but he's conniving for a good reason. Right. <laughs> and he uh, he's, yeah, I, I don't want to go too much into that, but I, I really enjoyed this film. But the one thing I was thinking of while I was watching it, and I mentioned it to Caroline previously. And I never got this, so. Uh, was that it does feel like it's a bunch of different plots from episodes of Star Trek. And... The big reveal at the end, I can totally see like uh, the disc floating in space mm -hmm. at the beginning of an episode, uh, and from there, yeah, it would it would spiral out into a classic episode or mm -hmm. something. But that's not a knock on it. I love Star Trek, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not me like knocking the film at all. That's me going, no, this is just like something else I love. Yeah, and we're talking about Rufus Sowell, who is a really, really great actor. And um, if you haven't seen him before, you might know him from Man in the High Castle, where she was excellent in that movie, or television series, rather. And he he goes through this almost like, um, I don't know if you say hero's journey, where he literally wakes up to what is really going on in the Dark City. He, he looks around and notices that, and this was something Tim brought up, that one minute a person will be the clerk at the hotel, and it seems like a minute or two later, there's someone else who's the clerk at the hotel, and that people are changing places, that it's constantly dark outside. Um, and the running question of... of do you know how to get to Shell Beach? Yes. And yeah. the the concept of what is actually real. Right. And and I love that in movies and I love that in in the books that I read is I I love what is reality and what isn't. And so this is what this is the reality of the people who are living in the dark city, but is that really reality? And at the end, there's no real set answer to that question, I don't believe. It's like there's the concept of, oh, yeah, this is what the aliens were doing. But even at the end, they're still in the city. And I keep thinking to myself, so now that 
um, John Murdoch, who again is very much like Neo in the Matrix, now that he basically has control of the city, what is he going to do with that? Is he going to stay the good guy that we keep on seeing him be? I mean, what happens after he gets to Shell Beach? Yes. And presumably they've plucked these people because they mentioned from different uh, moments in uh, time and different eras. So they've been doing this either a long time or they have such advanced like powers and abilities that he could theoretically do anything he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating way to leave off with him because everyone else is still in the city and it's mm -hmm. him and Anna on Shell Beach, the, the newly created Shell Beach. And they can clearly see they're floating in space at the end. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they can tell, but you can tell mm -hmm. from the audience perspective. And you know, you hope that he's going to keep the machinery running, make it night and day, and let people live their lives. Yes. So, but even though they're living their lives out in space. Yes. And they don't actually know where they come from, because that's mm -hmm. something particular that uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character says, is that he doesn't have any memories beyond what they let him keep, which is how to perform the work that he does. Mm -hmm. Uh, so even he, who knows what's going on behind the scenes, doesn't actually know the whole story. So, uh, so I have to ask this, Tim. Why did you make me watch The Postman? So, <laughs> uh, I uh, I enjoy The Postman. I'm I'm one of the five people <laughs> in who, the world <laughs> who enjoy The Postman, uh, and I I enjoyed it because. First off, the, the Postman is a post-apocalyptic um, movie about Kevin Costner's character who travels the wasteland, finds a postman's outfit, and sort of lies his way into becoming this symbol of like hope and communication. Uh, and I enjoy those aspects. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, that sounds really good. Yes. It's a good premise for a movie or, I, or a book. Like, yes. It is based off of The Postman by David Brin. Mm -hmm. And I, I enjoy those aspects of the movie, and I can see past the rest. That being said, this movie is probably uh, about an hour too long, mm -hmm. and most of that is in the front third of the movie. Uh, you could take out the first 15 minutes, and the movie doesn't really suffer for it. Uh, so, Caroline... I think I know the answer to this question, but what did you think of The Postman? <laughs> that was really a, a grueling movie to, to sit through, but I did it for you, Tim. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's overly long. It's very sappy yes. and cheesy, yes. and I... I I didn't believe Kevin Costner in the role. I it you were talking about if you took away the first 15 minutes of the movie it wouldn't matter, but I I don't know that I actually believe that because they're trying to establish him as the loner who's an actor, who's a survivor, who doesn't care about anything except for surviving. 
which I totally did not believe that was Kevin Costner. I can, he, he didn't seem like the con artist that he was supposed to be playing. He just, I, he didn't convince me. And then, um, uh, you go into the section where he's stuck in the, the military camp. Yes. And then I'm going, what am I watching? Because I thought he was supposed to be the postman. And maybe if you took away some from that part of the movie. Um, and then he, there, there's just, there's scenes like, okay. So there's this one scene in the movie where everybody is out who, that because, because of what Kevin Costner has been saying in the movie, oh, giving people hope by saying the government has been restored and now we have a postal system again. And so one of the characters um, takes that as, well, I'm going to be a, become a postman and I'm going to start our own postal service. Yes. And so they're all out riding on their horses and delivering the mail. And he rides past this poor little boy who's holding out his letter. And he's like, oh, mom, I missed him. He didn't take my letter. And somehow he knows that he's missed this poor child. And so he turns the horse around and he gallops in slow motion back to grasp the, the piece of mail from the poor taught. And then I wondered to myself, now does he have to turn around and go back? Because now he's going the wrong way. Yes, he does. <laughs> uh, and it's, so all of the direction, this film is directed by Kevin Costner. Mm -hmm. And you wonder what happened because Dances with Wolves is a great movie. What happened with this? Well, this is during the same sort of era where there was Waterworld and uh, just a few years later, there was 3,000 Miles to Graceland. Um, and those are all films I enjoy as well, but not necessarily the most publicly acclaimed films of mm -hmm. all time. Uh, that being said, I think there is a lot to enjoy in The Postman. The basic idea behind it is very nice. It's very the idea of the one thing people miss the most after an apocalypse is sort of just being able to be a community and be able to like reach out to the next town over. Okay, and I have to ask you about this this apocalypse. Yes. Because this movie takes place in 2013 after there's been this big global war and I don't know, do you remember the global war? That's true. Uh, I do, actually. Uh, uh, it's in places a very overly saccharine movie, and in other places a very silly movie. Uh, if you took out about an hour of it, or maybe even an hour and a half of it, and then you put it on Mystery Science Theater, it'd be great. Yeah. Because there's so much in it that you can you can point at and kind of chuckle about and have fun with, which is good when you have a, a film that is so bad it's good. Yes. And this film, as much as I enjoy it, really does not deserve Will Patton as... Uh, the general as Bethlehem mm -hmm. because he is 
incredibly intense the he entire is. movie. He is. He's a good bad guy. He is, and it's he gives a a heck of a heck of a turn as the bad guy for mm-hmm. this movie. Um, oh, there's another scene that I want to ask you about. So this is post-apocalyptic. Yes. So it, I'm assuming it's hard to find shelter. It's hard to find food. It's hard to think. find clothing. Clothing. <laughs> Yet there's an actual scene where um, Kevin Costner's girlfriend burns down their cabin just to get Kevin off of his butt to go and yes. do something. Yeah. Would you really do that? I mean, this cabin's beautiful. It's got everything they need. And she burns it down. At one point, doesn't she also shoot his horse? Yeah, she shoots it. Yeah, she does, doesn't she? Yes. She shoots his horse. So- yeah. <laughs> Uh, because they needed something to eat, yes. which is really not something that I like. Oh, you do anything to an animal in a movie, and I'm not happy. And uh, <laughs> so those are all like that whole segment of them supposedly getting close together after uh, he gets shot, and them spending the time in the cabin. That goes on a little too long. <laughs> Like, there's whole segments of this movie where you just say, okay, this is going on a little bit too long. Um, and specifically, like I mentioned in the beginning, the scene where he's walking across the desert, that's fine. That's a classic, like, apocalyptic-style shot. But then we spend the next 10 to 12 minutes with him rummaging around a gas station and then smoking cigarettes. And that that could all be sort of, like, taken out and him just ending up at the the town on the other side of the desert. So you could take out the whole 10 minutes at the gas station. You could take out uh, a lot of the stuff in the army. Uh-huh. Um, you could take out a, the a chunk of the cabin scene. You can take out a good hour of this movie, and it still feels really good, and keep all of the Mayor Tom Petty. Uh, no, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And, you know, he doesn't say he's anybody but Tom Petty. No, he just says, weren't you famous? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I used to be. Yeah. And, yeah, so this is a supremely silly movie that doesn't want to be silly. But when you watch it, you can't help but feel that way. Uh, there are great performances in it. We mentioned Will Patton. But that brings us uh, to our next and final film, uh, Caroline. Uh, why did you have us watch Prospect? Pedro Pascal. Ah. <laughs> I wanted to watch a movie, and I had um, read about this movie online um, with Pedro Pascal in it. I had seen all of The Mandalorian, and I've seen Wonder Woman 1984, and I loved him in both, and I read about it was an article where it kind of talked about prospect and wonder woman 1984 and the mandalorian and said these are all three movies about being a father but they're different and i was like okay i'm gonna give this a try and um it wasn't one that i had seen before or that tim had seen before so we were both like totally clueless about it before going into it And um, I did think it was a good movie. Um, It's definitely a low-budget science fiction. I mean, it's done very well, but I'm pretty sure it's not a studio movie. And um, 
it is because prospect, you get the idea that you're out in space and it's like another gold rush where you have people who are going to this planet and the planet is somehow, it's beautifully green, but it has spores or something in it that are toxic. And so everybody in the movie has to wear um, like space suits with filters in them. And um, they are on the planet because there are these like fleshy pods that they dig out, but inside is some sort of gem. And it's, I don't know what they need that gem for, but it's something where we have a lot of very disreputable people wanting to get this these gems um, for money, for whatever use. Yeah. And you have a father and daughter team who are prospectors. And at one point, the father is is killed in a very interesting firefight scene. And um, Pedro kind of has to take over, kind of like a father to this the, the girl, just so that he can survive and so that she could survive. So, Tim, what did you think? I It's interesting. So Pedro Pascal's character is a con man and a killer. And we come across him first when he's literally holding uh, Damon, the father, and uh, C, uh, the daughter. He's holding them up for what they've, him and his partner are holding them up for what they've dug out of the ground already. And through that, we end up with uh, Pedro Pascal's character being the only survivor out of Damon and his partner uh, to make it through to the next part of the movie. And he sort of teams up with C, not because he's looking out for her, but because he sort of has to. Yeah, that, that's the only way that the, either of them are going to survive. And yet it's probably a more honest relationship than she had with her dad. Because mm -hmm. we discover throughout the course of the movie that her dad is a pretty terrible person. Right. Uh, he had her crawling inside of uh, uh, livestock to like fetch out organs after while they were working on a, like a, a butchery in space uh, because she was the one who was small enough to crawl inside to get them. Uh, he brings her to this incredibly dangerous planet right? and essentially just yells at her most of the time. Mm -hmm. And you, you, you know that she does not know what's going on. She doesn't yes. know that, that he has this business relationship with um, some people that they're supposed to be meeting yes. at, um, what was it called? The Queen's Lair. Yeah. And he's bringing her, and Ezra points out later when she's going to go to the mercenaries on her own, he's like, you're going to go to the mercenaries, essentially a teenage girl, at the end of their trip, and you're going to what? Just ask them for help? Uh there, it's not going to turn out well for you. Mm -hmm. And so that's, when you start thinking about it, you're like, yeah, Damon, Damon basically put her in a lot of terrible situations. And whenever she expressed any interest in anything else, he told her she was wasting her time mm -hmm. and that she should work on skills that'll get her through life. Mm -hmm. And so if 
Pedro Pascal's Ezra just being like, no, I want to do this so we can get money and we can leave, is a much more honest relationship than she had with her own dad. Right, that's true. And um, there is, talking about like the Western aspects of this, um, Pedro Pascal is this movie. I mean, he steals the whole movie. And he has a way of talking that is like straight out of a Western film. And actually, it reminded me a lot of um, uh, Maul in Firefly, the way he would talk. And you're better at doing that kind of way of talking than I am, Tim. Yeah, it's it's the sort of like salesman patter where you're saying words to fill in gaps mm-hmm. in the conversation. So you want to be agreeable. Uh, while at the same time, like... Trying to get your way. Yeah, advancing your own point. Mm -hmm. So nothing you hear from Ezra actually um, really gets across what he wants. Everything is that quick-fire patter where he's just saying something like, I completely understand what you're saying, but, and hear me out here, and he just sort of keeps going and keeps filling in the sound. To the point where nothing really, like, nothing he says actually is the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, until near the very end where he's just, at at the end, he thinks he's going to die and he just wants to do something that's right. Mm-hmm. And that's the only, the only time, he, and he doesn't really talk that much during that point either, mm-hmm. which is very key, I think, for his character. Mm-hmm. He, he finally lets his actions speak louder than he does. Right. Um, so I think that that brings us towards the end right, of yeah. our uh, uh, podcast here. So today we discussed The Lost World. We discussed Dark City. We discussed The Postman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we discussed Prospect. And you can find all of these on Canopy which is a digital service the library offers. Uh, I'm Tim. And I'm Caroline. And thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Shelf Logic. Make sure to hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on social media where we are at MCLDAZ.